electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm John Ford in for Kelly Evans. Here is what's ahead. The heat is on. Hot inflation numbers turning up the pressure on the Fed and raising questions about the need uh, and the speed of its taper. We will look at how far behind the curve they might be. Plus, it's no secret that auto prices have been soaring are there any signs that things are improving? We will ask the CEO of CarGurus.com following strong earnings and a stellar rally this year. And earnings exchange. We've got the action and the story and the trade on three key earnings ahead. Lordstown, Blink Charging, and Warby Parker. When we begin with today's markets, Dom Chu with the numbers. Why don't we start with the epicenter of all of it. Yesterday's sell-off and today's rebound. It's the Nasdaq Composite. It is outperforming today up about three-quarters of 1%. We're up 112 points right now, roughly up about 146 or so points at the highs, up about 87 points at the lows there. So, again, some interesting moves there, tilting more towards the upside in the NASDAQ. It was, again, a lot of the technology stocks, growth stocks, that were triggered to the downside yesterday, somewhat on rising fears over inflation and rising interest rates as well. The Dow Industrial is now down about one quarter of 1%, 100 points to the downside. The S&P 500, 46.54, the last trade there, up about one-tenth, two-tenths of 1% as well. Uh, The stock of the day so far that we want to keep an eye on is Rivian, the electric truck maker in its second day as a public company, now at $123 a share. That's 22% upside on top of yesterday's massive gains. And that, by the way, puts the market cap of Rivian at roughly $105 billion. You've heard it, worth more than General Motors, worth more than Ford, although Ford owns an interest in Rivian. So Rivian shares now topping $123 a share. We continue to watch to see whether or not any momentum comes out of that trade. And then Another one in a more established name within the S&P 500. The second best performing stock in that large cap index today is Tapestry. We have to say it. It's the company formerly known as Coach. It's the parent company for a lot of brands like it, Kate Spade and others up almost 9 percent right now. Tapestry comes out with better than expected profits and revenues and they actually up their forecast. So take a look at Tapestry shares. And by the way, a one billion dollar stock buyback program has been now added to that particular move here in tapestry so watch those shares the consumer on the luxury end of things apparently doing pretty well enough for them to to buy back more stocks john and of course up their forecast back over to you guys and i guess they got some inventory which is not to be taken for granted in this market dom thanks meantime traders are moving up their expectations for the first fed rate hike following yesterday's cpi number and now New data from Bank of America shows bigger inflows to high-grade and high-yield funds as investors search for better returns. So is the Fed starting to sweat from the hottest inflation reading in 30 years? Steve Leisman is here with more on the fallout for rates. Steve? Yeah, John, heat's on. The talk that there's talk of the taper even before it could, it's begun could go faster than first announced. Wall Street economists speculating that the rapid and more widespread inflation we got in yesterday's October inflation report could prompt the Fed to a quicker reduction in asset purchases. That would open the window for 
faster rate hikes, potentially. Krishna Guha from Evercore ISI says, the report has to increase the likelihood that the Fed ends up accelerating its QE taper. However, we think the bar for speeding up tapering is quite high. They think December is still on at $15 billion after November. The Fed itself allowed for this possibility when it announced the $15 billion monthly reduction in the $120 billion in asset purchases this month. Said in a statement, the committee is prepared to adjust the pace of purchases if warranted by changes in the economic outlook. At the current pace, the Fed would finish the taper by May. If they stick to their plan of tapering before hiking, June would be the earliest possible month for a hike. So how's the market betting? Take a look. Fed funds futures puts a 36% chance of a, of a May quarter point hike and a 62% chance of one in June, 73% for July. A speedier taper? Not most economists' base case. There's still time for more workers to come off the sidelines and supply bottlenecks to clear. But the window for inflation to come down before the Fed has to hurry the process is narrow and closing fast, John. Uh, well, what is the message from the two-year on rates with, uh, with all of that new signal? Right. So we're not trading today, uh, John. So we have like a, a point in time here that 51 or 52 basis points on the two year is neutral as to speeding things up. If that were to go a little bit faster um, and, and go up a little bit more, that would also be an indication, John, that the market is betting on perhaps a faster taper and a quicker rate hike if that number gets up in the 55 or the 60 basis point range. So watch that. Watch the Fed fund futures and watch those tip spreads as well. All right. Well, that's something we can keep an eye on. Steve, thank you. So what happens to rates and stocks if the Fed does decide to speed up that taper timeline? Joining me now is Charlie Babrinskoy, vice chairman and head of investment uh, at Ariel Investments. Um, so you think that interest rates have got to go up, especially in this high inflation environment? Yeah, I mean, it, negative real interest rates make no economic sense. It, it does not make sense to have a 10-year at 157 when we're staring at 6% CPI. Now, we're not going to have 6% CPI for the next four years, but I think we're going to have north of 3% for the next four years. And so this, this interest rate makes no sense, and it's mostly the product of government buying in bonds, people hiding and using bonds as a hedge, Nobody is looking at these interest rates as an investment opportunity because it's a negative result. And so these rates have to go higher. They, are, they make no sense on a historical basis. Um, all of this talk of transitory is, has just been wrong. All of the factors pushing inflation are pointing in one direction, which is hot, one direction, which is higher for longer. And the government needs, the Fed needs to stop talking about tapering. They need to stop buying bonds and adding to the money supply. M2 has already gone from 16 trillion to 22 trillion. That's a 30% increase. They need to stop adding to the money supply. Okay, so if you're right about that and rates heading higher, what's that going to do to consumer sentiment? Because already it seems like the consumer feels like the economy is worse than at least the numbers would tell us that it is. Yeah, so far, the consumer is still feeling pretty good. Uh, they feel good about their job. They feel good about their prospect for getting another job. Uh, they've actually had a nominal increase in wages, although not a real increase. And there's a lot of studies that show that workers do tend to look at nominal wages. Uh, and frankly, they have a lot of pent-up demand. They didn't buy any cars during COVID, and they want to buy cars now. They want to go on trips. So we think the consumer is in very good shape, which is why we saw a great jobs number. We think we're going to have a good economy 
but a lot of inflation, higher rates, and that's got real implications for where you want to invest. Yeah, talk about that. Growth stocks, what's the impact there? I mean, on one side, I guess you could argue, if it's truly a growth stock with good prospects, it, it's going to grow, it's going to turn in good numbers, but valuations maybe not going to be uh, at the levels where they are now if interest rates had higher? Yeah, John, that's a very important point. And I always point to Microsoft in the year 2001. They were a great company in 2001. Over the next 10 years, their earnings tripled and their stock went down 35%. Why? Because they started that period at a 45 PE and they ended it at a 13 PE. So there are a lot of these companies today that you're absolutely right that they're going to do fine from an operating point of view, but the stocks are not going to do well when people start using a real discount rate rather than this very unusual discount rate that they've been using for the last 10 years. So how do you prepare for that? I mean, wh what do you put money into if not those? And, and plus, I mean, <laughs> tech stocks are such a big part of major indices, especially the S&P 500. I mean, is there anywhere to hide? So uh, big stocks, uh, tech stocks, were a very important part of the S&P 500 in 2001. And that was exactly why you didn't want to buy the S&P. You wanted to own value stocks in 2001. And right now, you should own value stocks. We've got lots of great banks trading at 11 and 12 times earnings. We have some energy companies. Uh, I happen to love Apache, which uh, is trading at about seven times earnings. We have some consumer discretionary names that are tied to the auto industry, like Borg Warner trading at... 10 times earnings. There's lots of good value in value stocks, uh, and there isn't much value in tech stocks, and there is no value in bonds. Yeah, no, no kinds of bonds whatsoever. People are still, I mean, they're used to those rules of thumb about how much you should be in bonds, but what do you substitute for what would have gone into bonds for safety in this kind of an environment? Very, very, very short term fixed income. So I'm talking six-month CDs. I'm talking basically cash. So you're going to want to have a very low duration. I, I know people can't have their whole net worth in stocks. I get that. Uh, you need to be diversified with real uh, natural resource companies. I think you can... Actually, this is a time when owning some gold probably makes sense. Uh, but if I don't want you to have... Nobody should have all their assets in stocks. So very short-term fixed income securities like cash. Boy, uh with interest, with, uh, sorry, inflation doing what it is. But still, I mean, I guess you got you to get protection somewhere. Charlie, thank you. Thanks for having Charlie me, Charlie Brinskoy with Ariel Investments. Now, coming up, today's Singles Day shopping event is setting sales records still in China. That could be a good sign for U.S. retailers banking on a strong holiday season. Up next, we're going to speak with the head of one company that's tackling taxes for millions of transactions around the world. And on deck for today's edition of Earnings Exchange, we've got Blake Charging, Lordstown Motors, and Warby Parker. We will bring you the action, the trade, and story for these three names. The exchange is back after this. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. shopping season is in full swing with China's Singles Day today and Cyber Monday just around the corner. But with ongoing supply issues and rising inflation this year's season could look a lot different for some companies. Joining me now is Scott McFarlane, CEO of Avalara, which uh, managed taxes for $90 billion worth of goods during Cyber Week in 2019. Scott, good to have you. Uh, you guys had earnings last week, I believe it was. You, you announced some uh, big new deals across verticals, including uh, manufacturing, retail. We've been talking about inflation, the, the supply chain challenges. I imagine customers are probably having to, to take pricing actions, and that's affecting them. What are you seeing within your customer base as they adjust to this situation? Hey, John, great to see you again. Thanks for thanks for having me. Um, you know, this is uh, I always say uh, at this time of the year, it's our Super Bowl. You know, I mean, when you talk about doing sales tax transactions, there's not any bigger days than than what you have uh, in you know Black Friday and Cyber Monday. And and but what we've seen over the years is is a stretching out of that time period as people are trying to get people earlier in the process. And so that sort of cyber week has turned into cyber month. And we can see that in the number of transactions that are happening on a daily, uh, hourly, you know, even down to the second. Um, But what you're also seeing, I think, uh, with, with what's going on here is everybody's worried about how they are going to deal with the supply chain issues. I mean, will there be the toys that they want on the shelves? Will they have all those things? So people are sort of getting in line earlier, and we're seeing a, a, a much uh, a greater uh, uh, sales volume than, than we saw um, last year at this time. Now, you're also uh, investing uh for growth, uh, you acquired uh, Crowd Reason, which focuses on property tax compliance applications. Tell me about the thought process behind that, what that adds to your portfolio, and what business need for your customer base you think that's particularly going to solve. Can we, you know, when we started out, I mean, we started out just in the sales tax space. I mean, we were solving a problem that was happening in the magic moment of commerce, right? It was really the last vestige to be automated. You know, when you stop and think about it, sales tax has been around for 5,000 years. It's not like it's something new. Um, but we came along with the new technology, you know, being able to apply, you know, cloud and, 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 and SaaS technology to the problem. And really create an environment where we thought we have a chance to be part of every transaction in the world. Think about that for a minute. I mean, we really do believe that we have an opportunity around the globe to, uh, uh, to be part of every transaction in the world. But beyond that, what we're creating at Avalara is a global SaaS uh, compliance platform, right? So it's not just about sales tax. It's about all of the taxes that, and, and the revenue that states and governments get. So I always like to say we're following the money. So we started out in sales tax. You know, now we do hospitality tax, excise tax, you know, uh, telecom tax, um, all sorts of different taxes. We do business licenses. 
I mean, mm. wherever states and governments are getting revenue, we are taking the opportunity to help them get automated, take the burden off the customer, and property tax is just one more area. And it's a huge area. Well, so I like to say we're, fruit, we're, we're building out for the, for the current time, but future-proofing our business down the road. Let me try to tease out more of a thesis here. Uh, we've seen what's happened to the conversation about globalization over the past couple of years. It's not, it's not as popular as it once was. Is the world becoming increasingly fractured, well, whether you're talking about the separation between U.S. and China, whether you're talking about different uh, tax regimes in different uh, countries, or are, are things coming together? If there's a fracturing, is that what it is that you're trying to address? You know, so, so uh, from a geopolitical perspective, you know, look at, I, you know, you can have your opinion of whether it's fracturing or it's coming together, but from a, from a commerce perspective, where, where we see it, what you, you know, what, what we see is that it's undeniable that commerce is global today. I mean, every e-commerce uh, uh, platform, every business is thinking about how do they expand and exploit the global market. So from a taxation perspective, from a commerce perspective, from a compliance perspective, I mean, it, it's, 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 they're all blending together now. Yeah, going to have to have software solutions to get that business done globally, even if it's not as easy as it was. Scott McFarlane, the CEO of Avalara, thank you. Hey, thanks, John. Appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you. And now coming up, a special Castle edition of Rising Risks. We are looking at the long-term effects of climate change on some famous fortresses. Plus, this stock is falling to a new all-time low and is on pace for its worst day ever. We will tell you what's behind that drop next. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets trying to stage a rebound from yesterday's inflation-driven sell-off. The Nasdaq's the biggest gainer of the major indices, getting a boost from big tech stocks and the chip makers. Here's some of the movers this hour. Disney is on pace for its worst day in more than a year after its first earnings miss since May 2020. Disney added just 2 million Disney Plus subscribers after more than 12 million last quarter. On the other hand, Disney's pain could be Netflix's gain. Shares there enjoying a nice bump of more than 2%. Remember, it added about 4.5 million subscribers in Q3. And shares of Beyond Meat face planting after missing revenue expectations and giving a gloomy outlook. The company blaming temporary challenges, including labor shortages, supply chain issues, and severe weather affecting a Pennsylvania facility. But Wall Street's not too optimistic about a turnaround. Only one analyst has a buy rating, according to FactSet. 
And Bumble was the mystery chart we showed you before the break. Shares hitting an all-time low and having their worst day since going public. The slide coming after it posted user growth declines for the first time as a public company. Bumble did raise its full-year revenue forecast. The CEO telling us on Tech Check this morning they're building for decades, not days, and that days like these do not get in their way. Up next, shares of Lordstown Motors climbing on its manufacturing deal with Foxconn, but will its quarterly numbers leave investors hitting the brakes? And Warby Parker's first result as a public company could reveal just how hot direct-to-consumer brands really are. All that and more coming up in today's edition of Earnings Exchange. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It is time for Earnings Exchange, or really Results Exchange, since Lordstown, Blink Charging, and Warby Parker are all expected to post losses in their reports. First up, a tough ride for Lordstown Motors this year, with the stock down 65% and 80% off its 52-week high. The move lower, driven in part by a Hindenburg short report accusing the company of faking its EV orders. But after Rivian's strong debut yesterday, Lordstown Motors shares are now up, boy, more than 26 percent into their results tonight. Can the pre-revenue company provide any guidance on its first real deliveries? Let's bring in Phil LeBeau for the story, as well as Kim Forrest, Bokeh Capital Partners CIO for the trade. Phil? And, and John, I think when you look at Lordstown, keep in mind that there is a new CEO, wasn't involved in everything that was in the past uh, behind the stock falling so much. Dan Ninavagi, in this report today, Look for him to talk about, here's where we are, here's the plan going forward. Remember, Foxconn, they've entered into an agreement with Foxconn, now buying uh, a good chunk of that facility in Lordstown, Ohio. They'll be working with Foxconn uh, as a contract manufacturer. And then what will they be able to tell us about the new endurance pickup truck? Remember, there was so much hype under the previous CEO, Steve Burns, about, hey, how many orders we have, when we're going to roll this out. Do not expect that from uh, the CEO of Lordstown now. This is all about where are we at, where are we going, and a much more predictable and stable environment for Lordstown investors. Phil, I still got Charlie Babrinskoy from uh, the beginning of the show in my head, though, about this rising rate environment and the danger for growth stocks. So I wonder, with companies like Lordstown that are pretty short on results right now, I I wonder if investors need to be uh, careful in what benchmarks, what uh, signs of progress they can expect to see that might hold the stock up. I think there's going to be a fair amount of skepticism from investors uh, when it comes to Lordstown and some of the other EV startups until they can post some results that they can say, "Okay, you told us that you would do this, whether it's by the first half of 2022, the end of 22, 23, whatever it might be. So I'm not sure we're going to see great growth out of these EV related stocks. Uh, Yes, they'll be up on a day like today or coming off of yesterday because of enthusiasm following the Rivian IPO. But I do think that there will be a period here where investors are going to say, "Okay, you've got some interest here, but now I need to see results over time. Kim, I I wonder if these EV names are just following each other around. I mean, Rivian may be getting a multiple because of Tesla and now Lordstown, uh, you know, getting a rise because of Rivian. How do you invest here if you do it all? It does seem like a snake following its tail, doesn't it? Just a little bit. Um, I don't know. I would do this extremely cautiously. And if you can look at the chart on that stock, it tells you some things. First of all, they had an accounting issue. 
which is never, ever a good thing. It was a sales-related issue that there were sales that they talked about that weren't actually there. What I learned in this industry is my very first director of research said, if you see one cockroach, there's probably more cockroaches. And I think that's why the stock has been languishing, because they really do want to figure out if this new CEO and CFO are going to be, well, a little more truthful, right, than the last one. Mm. So there's that. And I would be very careful on this stock because not only are they, um, uh, you know, light on cash, and that's why they had to do the Foxconn deal, but now they have another partner that they have to satisfy, which is Foxconn. So it's a complicated story, and um, I'm just going to say there are simpler stories that you can invest in, and that's what I would point you to do. Well, let's see if the stories may be simpler in the infrastructure here, Phil. Let's talk about another EV-related stock getting a Rivian boost today. Blink charging shares up 8% and 25% in the last month as President Biden's infrastructure bill allocated several billion dollars for EV charging. But, Phil, it's another pre-revenue company still building out. Is there a a different kind of compelling story here? Well, it's more compelling from the sense that you know that you will have these infrastructure dollars that will be going into adding EV charging stations around the country. We're in a bit of a land grab right now when it comes to EV charging stations. And I think for a number of investors, the real question becomes, when can I can I clearly understand and see when there is going to be revenue and sustainable profits from these EV charging companies? They're not in that point yet. I think investors are still trying to wrap their heads around how many of these will have to go in, what, what's going to be the cost you know, situation uh, when it comes to the installation of these chargers. So I'm not saying that you have to sell this stock. I'm just saying it's one of those areas when you're looking at the charging companies, things still need to be clarified for investors. Hmm. Can, can you feel any better about this one? I mean, I guess it's in a way it's, it's betting on EVs in general versus any one particular company. I do. And I also hear what Phil's saying that, uh, you know, especially pre-revenue companies, buyer beware. And I agree wholeheartedly. However, if this company is involved in the land grab and getting non, um, you know, gasoline station charging units out there, I think it could be, if they do it right, a compelling um, purchase for another company that wants to uh, either um, expand its footprint of EV charging stations or just get into it. So to me, I keep this in the back of my mind as a potential candidate for acquisition. And that's always kind of an interesting play. But when and for how much, I can't tell you. So is this kind of like uh, cell towers in, in a sense then, Kim, do you think? Uh, it, it, you talked about um, kind of the land grab aspect and the idea that there's this infrastructure that's going to be necessary for the overall build-out and adoption of a technology? I think that's an excellent analogy um, because these they're going to want to put these things on property they don't own. It's just a lease, so um, that's one aspect. And there's going to have to be a lot of them, just like with cell towers, probably more than would need for regular gas stations because we can gas and go pretty quickly But it looks like currently you have to stay charging for kind of a long time. So the footprint's going to be large. Phil Abode, does this put players like Blink 
in competition with Tesla uh, when it comes to charging? Are there barriers to entry that investors should think about that uh, one charging or EV related company might have versus others? Well, one thing that they do encounter with Blink and with other of the EV charging companies is the charging time. How quickly can it happen? And that depends entirely on the type of charger that uh, is put in there. For example, you may have some businesses that will say, look, we're going to put in a charging unit and our customers with EVs can charge while they're inside the store. Do you think that's going to be a fast charger? Not right now. It's not. For many people, they they charge in and they say, "Okay, well, how long is this going to take? What am I going to get out of it? In the future, if you have a chance, John, to go someplace and you know that it's a fast charger and you know that you can, you know, get a a fair amount of juice in a short amount of time, that's going to be more valuable. And right now, it's all over the map when you look at the charging stations. So to an extent, to get back to your question, yes, Tesla is a competitor. Because when you look at the supercharger network, one of the things that you hear from Tesla owners is they love the fact that when it comes to charging up, they know where it's at, and they know how quickly they'll be able to charge up. Yeah, it's like cheaper gas, only you're paying with your time, not necessarily just with your money. Phil LeBeau, sure. thank you. Uh, and finally, let's get a look at how the direct-to-consumer trend really is doing with Warby Parker's first results as a public company before the bell tomorrow. The trendy eyeglass and uh, eye health companies trading right ahead of its opening price of 54 bucks a share after its direct listing in September. Let's bring in Courtney Reagan for the story on Warby. Um, how does the path to profitability look for Warby, especially with this retail build-out, Courtney? Yeah, that's the big question, John. And basically the retail, the physical store locations, is what's going to help offset some of those massive investments into e-commerce. The company is expecting both to grow. They've previously said they hope to add 30 to 35 more retail locations by the end of this year, 2021, bringing their total in-person shopping experience stores to 155 to 160. So we're going to look and see if they can give us an update on that. And the path to profitability is the story with so many of these direct-to-consumer companies. And Warby Parker did have a year where they broke even a couple years ago, but they've posted losses since. So, of course, that revenue comes at a cost and investors are only going to be patient for so long. The shares did surge on the first day of trading as a directly listed company. When it went public, they surged about 36 percent. They're now just about flat in the last six weeks since it made its debut as a direct listing, which does fare better than other direct-to-consumer e-commerce kind of players like Rent the Runway or Allbirds, which, of course, do also have some physical locations too. So I think it's really going to be about what the outlook is for this company going into the rest of the year and that path to profitability. Another point that I'm curious about, John, and and the analysts are still ramping up coverage, so we don't really have a good outlook on this from those that cover the stock, is if any of this, uh, any of the consumers looking to spend those FSA dollars by the end of the year could be a ramp up into the fourth quarter or not kind of remains to be seen now that some companies are allowing you to spend those dollars a little bit later. And of course, eyeglasses might be a tough thing to buy as a holiday gift. So I don't know that Warby Parker is going to be as much of a holiday shopping play as some of the other retailers, but still a lot to learn from the first quarter of a, as, a, as a public company. Yeah, yeah. Maybe some people shopping for themselves. We'll see. But Kim, I used to, in this direct-to-consumer space, want to look at Peloton as an example of a stock that had continued to do well. But boy, rough few weeks for that one. So what 
do you need to see from Warby as an investor if you're going to get in here? And how do you feel about it? Sure. A couple things. When I originally looked at their S1, or um, I did notice that their margins are increasing. Now, uh, and I mean gross margins, right? They, they seem to be able to make um, glasses more profitably, which that's what they make. So that's a good thing. So I would want to see that part of the story. I'd also want to really watch how much they need to spend on their, um, you know, physical stores. So that is a concern. But I know as somebody that has had glasses for a very long time, actually going to the store is a lot easier for me than ordering them five at a time and going, oh, those didn't work out. So um, I think they're going in the right direction. And finally, somewhere along the line, I think it's them, I'm pretty sure, they've talked about maybe wholesaling. And I think that's really interesting and shows how flexible of a company that they are. But yes, they're direct to consumer. They were e-commerce only. They, you know, made the bold move into stores and maybe they want to, you know, have another line of glasses that they could sell to their com- competitors if they can make glasses at a, at a uh, good margin. So I think that's kind of key to their success. Are they going to be flexible enough in addressing their market? Well, I know they've definitely got contacts going and uh, moving further into eye exams. Uh, Courtney Reagan, Kim Forrest, thank you. And thanks again to Phil LeBeau. And now let's get to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, John. Here's what's happening at this hour. Lawyers for former President Donald Trump asking the federal appeals court to temporarily block a transfer of documents to the Congressional Committee investigating the January 6th assault on the Capitol. The National Archives is due to turn over the first batch of White House records tomorrow. The Trump team wants more time to appeal earlier rulings against them. President Biden, meantime, has rejected Trump's claim that the documents are covered by executive privilege. And this morning, Biden participated in a wreath-laying ceremony at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. In a speech marking Veterans Day, Biden promised to work with Congress on benefits for Americans who have served in the military. And Queen Elizabeth will attend a service on Sunday commemorating the end of World War I. While she did record a video message for the Global Climate Summit, the Queen has also missed several public appearances in recent weeks, with doctors advising the 95-year-old monarch to rest after medical checks in a hospital last month. And tonight on the news with Shepard Smith, a former Marine trying to reduce suicides among veterans by providing service dogs to help restore their physical and emotional independence. You're now up to date. John, I'll send it back to you. Such an important story. Rahel, thank you. And up next with the COP26 Climate Summit in Scotland coming to a close, we will get a look at the rising risks that climate change poses to some of the country's oldest and most popular landmarks. In the country, I mean Scotland. It's castles. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back. CNBC's Rising Risks series has been looking at how climate change will have an impact on both residential and commercial real estate. But today it takes a look at those effects on something a bit different. Diana Olick is in Scotland with the story. For 1,000 years, Edinburgh Castle has stood watch over dozens of wars and social revolutions. It is a testament to time itself, but time may be running out. When we have really extreme rainfall events that we haven't seen in our time, our lifetime or recorded history, then we're not actually even sure what might happen to some of these buildings. 
Just this past July, a freak storm dumped more than a month's worth of rain on Scotland in barely a day, doing serious damage to Edinburgh Castle. That had um, quite significant effects in terms of damage to floor surfaces and um, in the interiors. Um, so we've been working really hard to remedy that. But we also need to start thinking about how we um, react in future to an event like that, given that those events are becoming more frequent. Scotland's 10 warmest years have all been in the last three decades, at least since they began tracking this in 1884. Warmer temperatures cause heavier rains and the intensity of daily extreme rainfall events over Edinburgh are expected to increase. This could cause three to four times the annual normal damage to the area's historic castles. Blackness Castle stands on the edge of the sea, on the front lines of coastal erosion. Like with Edinburgh Castle, the Historic Society is fixing outer walls to protect it, because while castles are part of Scotland's identity, they are also invaluable to its economy. Over a third of the tourists who come to Scotland say they've come specifically to see heritage sites, and obviously that generates millions, indeed billions of pounds for Scotland's economy. The Scots do love their castles and want to do anything they can to protect them from climate change. But for some of the castles, at least, there is an argument to be made that protecting these great relics of the past might not be the best thing for Scotland's future. Because restoration is costly, and some argue the money could be put to better use in making the city itself both greener and more resilient to climate change. Culture is dynamic. It's part of who we are, it's part of our community. We change as a society and, you know, sometimes we lose things. But it's also about understanding that it's okay to lose things. And today's theme at COP is the built environment. Parties working on plans to both adapt and protect older structures, as well as urban planners looking at how to build more resilient communities in the future. I spoke to the CEO of JLL here who said green buildings, that's a great ambition, but real estate developers in the U.S. are still way behind. John? Ah, how far behind? I mean, uh, there are technologies, right, that are going into homes and buildings that are reducing carbon footprints, right? Yeah, I mean, you have a lot of smart technology going in. Just think about that smart thermostat in your house or, or even Moen, which is putting in these detectors in the walls to source out if there's a leak in a pipe that will save water. But it's really the bigger structures. It's really getting developers behind it because it could take five to ten years to get office or hotel developments or whatever, the larger commercial structures going. And they're really behind on doing that kind of thing. So they're retrofitting, but they're not planning enough or quickly enough for the future, John. Yeah, big decisions being made. I don't know about letting Scotland's castles go, just expecting something's going <laughs> to replace that. That's, that'd be a tough pill to swallow. Diana Olick, thank you. Uh, up next, shares of car gurus climbing more than 10% over the past two days on an earnings beat and strong revenue guidance. We're going to talk to the CEO about that and how the pandemic has permanently changed how people buy cars. Welcome back to The Exchange. According to car gurus, new auto inventory rose for the first time this year in October, but prices also climbed higher thanks to inflation. New car prices were up 24% year-over-year last month, while used cars were up more than 30% from last year's levels. That's giving car gurus a big boost. The online marketplace saw sales surge 51% last quarter, while shares are on pace for their best year ever, up 24%. For more, let's welcome the CEO of Car Gurus, uh, Jason Trevison. Jason, um, so 
new vehicle inventory increasing a bit, but is that in part because people figure I, I can't find a car anyway, so they're not actively shopping? What's going on here? No, thank you very much for having me on, John. Uh, so new car inventory is still down quite a bit. It is up uh, over the last 30 days, but it is still down about 70% from last year. Used car inventory is, is also down about 10%, so not as bad, but but inventory is down across the board. You see a lot of dealers' lots that are less full than they normally are. And as a result, especially with high consumer demand, prices are up quite a bit, which you cited. So when does this turn around, do you think? That's a good question. And, and uh, the, the industry has forecasted that it could be as early as early next year. But I think increasingly, uh, the estimates are pushing into later next year. Why is the, that? The, it's born out of the chip shortage uh, among the OEMs, the, the new car manufacturers. Uh, they canceled a lot of their orders, uh, understandably, at the, at the uh, start of COVID, and uh, then had to get back in line for the chips. And as a result, uh, it's working its way through the system, and new cars are hard to get. So if you were to try and buy one now, you likely wouldn't get it for several months. But I, I wonder, too, from all I hear about the uh, foundry prices rising, for uh, chips, particularly the type that are going into the auto industry, which aren't the latest process technology, if those prices are going up, it seems like the car prices are probably going to remain high, which makes me think that maybe this inflation isn't transitory. I don't know. How much should we read into that? So I think it's a great question. I I think what's a a bigger driver of car prices right now is that imbalance of of high demand with low inventory. Uh, And so what you're seeing is that New car prices and used car prices are both up. People are paying for speed, so they'll pay oftentimes more for a used car they can get today than the same car that they would get new, but not for six months. And cars are sitting on lots uh, much less time. I mean, the days on market for a new car is down to about two-thirds of what it was a year ago. Uh, I think the, the increase in chip prices may cause uh, a, a slight increase in, in new cars in the future when inventory is normalized. But I think the bigger issue now is the, is the inventory constraint. What is going to determine what the car market looks like when we come out of this supply-constrained situation? If demand remains high and the economy in general is strong, then I imagine it might be a softer landing. But th- there are scenarios, aren't there, where this goes pretty badly if the economy weakens and then the supply shows up in the second half of last year. I mean, prices could uh, we could be in for quite a ride. It could be. I, th- I think what we're starting to see now is as we do a lot of consumer research uh, given the size of our consumer audience is that consumers are realizing uh, and reacting to the high prices because of the demand imbalance right now. And so uh, in a recent poll that we did, we found that 56 percent of consumers are aware of much higher prices. And as a result, almost a third of consumers are delaying their purchase. So I think like in a lot of, uh, we, a lot of us learn in economics classes, the supply and demand do tend to balance out over time. Uh, I think the other big shift is that a lot of consumer behavior is moving online, uh, which is where uh, we're focused on our platform. And that allows consumers to do more of the purchase online, uh, spend less time in the dealership, and that's allowing dealerships to uh, to have some pretty profitable quarters here because they don't have the size of the sale for, sales force they used to have. Yeah, software once again helping to drive efficiency. Uh, Jason Trevison, thank you from Cargo. Thank Gurus. you very much. Now coming up, Rivian customers have not yet gotten the vehicles they pre-ordered, but the EV company still delivered for some of them in a very different way. We're going to explain next the exchange. 
We'll be right back. Rivian following in Robinhood's footsteps, setting aside pre-IPO shares for existing customers. Given yesterday's climb in Rivian's first day of trading, those who took advantage of the company's offer saw big gains. Joining me now is CNBC's senior technology reporter, Ari Levy, who wrote a story on it. And Ari, we must be coming out of the pandemic because you cut that pandemic hair. I see you got the business cut back. Great story. Uh, interesting the way they allowed customers who pre-ordered to, to also get in on the stock, but uh, not everybody flipping it, huh? Yeah, well, John, what's particularly interesting here is that we've seen this with Airbnb, with Uber, with this company, Doximity, that uh, you know is a, is a marketplace for doctors, where they've offered pre-IPO shares, or IPO shares, I should say, to their customers. Uh, the difference here with Rivian is there are no actual customers because there's no actual product on the market. So it's just people who have put down their $1,000 uh, refundable deposit who were in the queue and, and available for, uh, for these IPO shares. Um, so the, the strategy has been implemented by other companies, but certainly a, an interesting wrinkle here with Rivian. Uh, and the, the folks who you talk to, they're not just interested in one EV company. They're interested in EVs in general, it seems like. Is this a way to uh, kind of brand themselves with an overall uh, potential customer base that's got a lot of options? Yeah, I, I mean, there are so many uh, EV companies out there now with high-priced stocks, even though there aren't very many products out there. Uh, so, so you're both looking for an investor base, you're trying to do something, uh, you know, original or, or clever for your investor base. And some of these companies are going public via SPAC. So they, they actually can't do something like, like what Rivian did. Um, and, and then, you know, there are other there are companies that are offering incentives for, for putting down pre-orders. Uh, you know, you're playing in this very crowded field, um, even though really, if you want to get a, an electric vehicle out from one of these, you know, pure play companies, Tesla is still your only option. Yeah, I was recently uh, at Valley Fair Mall out there in Silicon Valley and was struck by how there are more and more electric vehicle stores right there in malls, right? It's, just, it's like another device that you can buy. The, the marketing is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, and, and, you know, you think about where all this fits in kind of the broader market here is that, you know, with tech being up and to the right uh, for the last, you know, decade plus now uh, and all of this money having been made, both from people who have invested in tech stocks and through all the IPOs, uh, you know, everyone is looking for the next growth markets to put their money. You're seeing it in crypto. You're seeing it uh, in some of the downstream crypto products like NFT. And EVs are certainly a massive place where people are storing their money whether or putting their money, whether it's in the products themselves, what they can get access to, or, you know, or certainly the stocks. Yeah, uh, we're kind of ending the show here at the exchange with some of the growthiest of growth stocks, right? Talking about Rivian and EVs and some companies that don't uh, really have revenue yet to a large extent, a limited product. And we started off with a warning about exactly those in a rising interest rate environment. Ari Levy, thank you. And that's going to do it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. 
FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 